This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Dennis Johnson's story, Work. Usually, we felt guilty and frightened because there was something wrong with us and we didn't know what it was. But today, we had the feeling of men who had worked. The story was chosen by Donald Antrim, whose fiction and essays have been appearing in the magazine since 1996. His novels include The Verificationist and The Hundred Brothers, which were re-released last year in paperback by Picador. Hi, Donald. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So this story, Work, appeared in the magazine in 1988. Would you have read it back then? Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to read it now, really. Yeah. I didn't even remember that it had been so far back. I knew that it was a while ago. What were your thoughts on first reading it? There were two stories of Dennis Johnson's that The New Yorker published that year, I believe. The other was Two Men, and those stories are part of Jesus' Son, the collection. Mm-hmm. And they were the first stories by Johnson that I'd, I'd ever seen or read. I'd read poems, and I'd, and I'd read a, a, a couple of the novels. Mm-hmm. At the time, I, I was trying to write stories myself, but they were somewhat dead, and I think I felt a little lost. And I remember... It was very exciting to read this story and to read the others. But it wasn't long after that, I think, that I began to write the first novel, that I, my first novel, which, though it isn't really particularly similar to Dennis Johnson's stories, also operated with a first-person narrator and a kind of a fractured thought process. And I think that reading Dennis Johnson, it had to have had something to do with, you know, a sense of permission, a sense of freedom to do something that I didn't understand fully and that I didn't know how to imagine or how to envision. So the stories were important to me, and I hadn't really looked at them for, for quite a long time. And then I looked at this again before reading it, and I'm surprised by how dense it is, by how short it is, and really by how bold the story is, uh, how fast the transitions move. There are places where the pathetic fallacy seems to hold together and work and produce an incoherence in the thought process that actually has a coherence. And Fuckhead is the narrator, more or less, of all of these stories in Jesus' Son. is a very strong character. And he's a kind of drifter who's sort of going through life on various drugs, drinks, relationships, crimes... Drifting in He's a, way. a guy who lives in a world where bad things happen to everybody and the worst things happen to him. Now, among all of the stories in Jesus' Son, is there something about work that stands out for you? Work stands out in some way because it makes its own form apparent. It has a kind of a shape and a rise and a fall. Some of those stories seem to just explode out, and that's beautiful too. But this story, with all of its compression, with all of its broken logic with all of its incoherence, or with Fuckhead's incoherence, it nonetheless feels coherent. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Donald Antrim, reading Work by Dennis Johnson. I'd been staying at the Holiday Inn with my girlfriend, honestly the most beautiful woman I'd ever known, for three days under a phony name, shooting heroin. We made love in the bed, ate steaks at the restaurant, shot up in the john, Puked, cried, accused one another, begged of one another, forgave, promised, and carried one another to heaven. But there was a fight. I stood outside the motel hitchhiking, dressed in a hurry, shirtless under my jacket, 
with the wind crying through my earring. A bus came. I climbed aboard and sat on the plastic seat while the things of our city turned in the windows like the images in a slot machine. Once, as we stood arguing at a street corner, I punched her in the stomach. She doubled over and broke down crying. A car full of young college men stopped beside us. She's feeling sick, I told them. Bullshit, one of them said. You elbowed her right in the gut. He did, he did, he did, she said. I don't remember what I said to them. I remember loneliness crushing first my lungs, then my heart, then my balls. They put her in the car with them and drove away. But she came back. This morning, after the fight, after sitting on the bus for several blocks with a thoughtless red mind, I jumped down and walked into the vine. The vine was still and cold. Wayne was the only customer. His hands were shaking. He couldn't lift his glass. I put my left hand on Wayne's shoulder, and with my right, opiated and steady, I brought his shot of bourbon to his lips. How would you feel about making some money, he asked me. I was just going to go over here in the corner and nod out, I said. I decided, he said, in my mind to make some money. So what, I said. Come with me, he begged. You mean you need a ride? I have the tools, he said. All we need is that sorry-ass car of yours to get around in. We found my $60 Chevrolet, the finest and best thing I ever bought, considering the price, in the streets near my apartment. I liked that car. It was the kind you could bang into a foam pole with and nothing would happen at all. Wayne cradled his burlap sack of tools in his lap as we drove out of town to where the fields bunched up into hills and then dipped down toward a cool river shaded by benevolent clouds. All the houses on the riverbank a dozen or so, were abandoned. The same company, you could tell, had built them all and then painted them four different colors. The windows on the lower stories were empty of glass. We passed alongside them and I saw that the ground floors of these buildings were covered with silt. Sometime back a flood had run over the banks, canceling everything. But now the river was flat and slow. Willows stroked the water with their branches. Are we doing a burglary? I asked Wayne. You can't burglate a forgotten, empty house, he said, horrified at my stupidity. I didn't say anything. This is a salvage job, he said. Pull up to that one right about there. The house we parked in front of just had a terrible feeling about it. I knocked. Don't do that, Wayne said. It's stupid. Inside, our feet kicked up the silt the river had left there. The watermark wandered the walls of the downstairs about three feet above the floor. Straight, stiff grass lay all over the place in bunches as if someone had stretched them there to dry. Wayne used a pry bar, and I had a shiny hammer with a blue rubber grip. We put the pry points in the seams of the wall and started tearing away the sheetrock. It came loose with a noise like old men coughing. Whenever we exposed some of the wiring in its white plastic jacket, we ripped it free of its connections, pulled it out, and bunched it up. That's what we were after. 
we intended to sell the copper wire for scrap. By the time we were on the second floor, I could see we were going to make some money. But I was getting tired. I dropped the hammer and went to the bathroom. I was sweaty and thirsty, but of course the water didn't work. I went back to Wayne, standing in one of two small, empty bedrooms, and started dancing around and pounding the walls, breaking through the sheetrock and making a giant racket until the hammer got stuck. Wayne ignored this misbehavior. I was catching my breath. I asked him, Who owned these houses, do you think? He stopped doing anything. This is my house. It is? It was. He gave the wire a long, smooth yank, a gesture full of the serenity of hatred, popping its staples and freeing it into the room. We balled up big gobs of wire in the center of each room, working for over an hour. I boosted Wayne through the trap door into the attic, and he pulled me up after him, both of us sweating and our pores leaking the poisons of drink, which smelled like old citrus peelings. And we made a mound of white-jacketed wire on the top of his former home, pulling it up out of the floor. I felt weak. I had to vomit in the corner, just a thimbleful of gray bile. All this work, I complained, is fucking with my high. Can't you figure out some easier way of making a dollar? Wayne went to the window. He rapped it several times with his pry bar, each time harder, until it was loudly destroyed. We threw the stuff out there onto the mud-flattened meadow that came right up below us from the river. It was quiet in this strange neighborhood along the bank, except for the steady breeze and the young leaves. But now we heard a boat coming upstream. The sound curlicued through the riverside saplings like a bee, and in a minute, a flat-nosed sports boat cut up the middle of the river, going thirty or forty at least. This boat was pulling behind itself a tremendous triangular kite on a rope. From the kite, up in the air a hundred feet or so, a woman was suspended, belted in somehow, I would have guessed. She had long red hair. She was delicate and white and naked except for her beautiful hair. I don't know what she was thinking as she floated past these ruins. What she doing was all I could say, though we could see that she was flying. Now that is a beautiful sight, Wayne said. On the way to town, Wayne asked me to make a long detour onto the old highway. He had me pull up to a lopsided farmhouse set on a hill of grass. I'm not going in but for two seconds, he said. You want to come in? Who's here? I said. Come and see, he told me. It didn't seem anyone was home when we climbed the porch and he knocked. But he didn't knock again, and after a full three minutes a woman opened the door, a slender redhead and a dress printed with small blossoms. She didn't smile. Hi, was all she said to us. Can we come in? Wayne asked. Let me come on the porch, she said, and walked past us to stand looking out over the fields. I waited at the other end of the porch, leaning against the rail, and didn't listen. I don't know what they said to one another. She walked down the steps, and Wayne followed. He stood hugging himself and talking down at the earth. The wind lifted and dropped her long red hair. 
She was about 40, with a bloodless, waterlogged beauty. I guessed Wayne was the storm that had stranded her here. In a minute, he said to me, Come on. He got in the driver's seat and started the car. You didn't need a key to start it. I came down the steps and got in beside him. He looked at her through the windshield. She hadn't gone back inside yet or done anything at all. That's my wife, he told me, as if it wasn't obvious. I turned around in the seat and studied Wayne's wife as we drove off. What can be said about those fields? She stood in the middle of them as on a high mountain, with her red hair pulled out sideways by the wind. Around her the green and gray plains pressed down flat, and all the grasses of Iowa whistling one note. I knew who she was. That was her, wasn't it? I said. Wayne was speechless. There was no doubt in my mind. She was the woman we'd seen flying over the river. As near as I could tell, I'd wandered into some sort of dream that Wayne was having about his wife and his house. But I didn't say anything more about it because, after all, in small ways, it was turning out to be one of the best days of my life, whether it was somebody else's dream or not. We turned in the scrap wire for $28 each at a salvage yard near the gleaming tracks at the edge of town and went back to the vine. Who should be pouring drinks there but a young woman whose name I can't remember? But I remember the way she poured. It was like doubling your money. She wasn't going to make her employers rich. Needless to say, she was revered among us. I'm buying, I said. No way in hell, Wayne said. Come on. It is, Wayne said, my sacrifice. Sacrifice? Where had he gotten a word like sacrifice? I'd seen Wayne look across the poker table in a bar and accuse, I do not exaggerate, the biggest, blackest man in Iowa of cheating, accuse him for no reason other than that he, Wayne, was a bit irked by the run of the cards. That was my idea of sacrifice. Tossing yourself away, discarding your body. The black man stood up and circled the neck of a beer bottle with his fingers. He was taller than anyone who had ever entered that bar room. Step outside, Wayne said. And the man said, This ain't school. What the goddamn fucking piss hell, Wayne said, is that supposed to mean? I ain't stepping outside like you do at school. Make your try right here and now. This ain't the place for our kind of business, Wayne said. Not inside here with women and children and dogs and cripples. Shit, the man said. You're just drunk. I don't care, Wayne said. To me, you don't make no more noise than a fart in a paper bag. The huge, murderous man said nothing. I'm going to sit down now, Wayne said, and I'm going to play my game and fuck you. The man shook his head. He sat down too. This was an amazing thing. By reaching out one hand and taking hold of it for two or three seconds, he could have popped Wayne's head like an egg. And then came one of those moments. I remember living through one when I was 18 and spending the afternoon in bed with my first wife before we were married. Our naked bodies started glowing, 
and the air turned such a strange color, I thought my life must be leaving me. And with every young fiber and cell, I wanted to hold on to it for another breath. A clattering sound was tearing up my head, and I staggered upright and opened the door on a vision I will never see again. Where are my women now, with their sweet wet words and ways, and the miraculous balls of hail popping in a green translucence in the yards? We put on our clothes, she and I, and walked out into a town flooded ankle-deep with white, buoyant stones. Birth should have been like that. That moment in the bar, after the fight was narrowly avoided, was like the green silence after the hailstorm. Somebody was buying a round of drinks. The cards were scattered on the table, face up, face down, and they seemed to foretell that whatever we did to one another would be washed away by liquor or explained away by sad songs. Wayne was a part of all that, the vine was like a railroad club car that had somehow run itself off the tracks into a swamp of time where it awaited the blows of the wrecking ball. And the blows really were coming. Because of urban renewal, the whole downtown was being torn up and thrown away. And here we were this afternoon with nearly $30 each and our favorite, our very favorite person tending bar. I wish I could remember her name but I remember only her grace and her generosity. All the really good times happened when Wayne was around. But this afternoon somehow was the best of all those times. We had money. We were grimy and tired. Usually we felt guilty and frightened because there was something wrong with us and we didn't know what it was. But today we had the feeling of men who had worked. The vine had no jukebox but a real stereo continually played tunes of alcoholic self-pity and sentimental divorce. Nurse, I sobbed. She poured doubles like an angel, right up to the lip of the cocktail glass, no measuring. You have a lovely pitching arm. You had to go down to them like a hummingbird over a blossom. I saw her much later, not too many years ago, and when I smiled, she seemed to believe I was making advances. But it was only that I remembered. I'll never forget you. Your husband will beat you with an extension cord, and the bus will pull away, leaving you standing there in tears. But you were my mother. That was Donald Antrim, reading work by Dennis Johnson. The story was collected in Jesus' Son, which is published by Picador. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Donald, right before the story, you were talking a bit about the form of this story and, and how it seems to have a coherence to it. One thing that I think of when I read this is that uh, Johnson just sort of deliberately breaks Chekhov's rule about waving a gun in the first act and having it go off by the third act because he starts off with this girlfriend in the hotel and then we never come back to her. We just sort of meander off in another direction. We totally forget about her. She's back in that uh, hotel room, forever stranded at the Holiday Inn. I wonder, what is the shape of this story? Is it meant to be just a sort of picaresque one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing? It doesn't really feel picaresque to me, you know, and maybe that's because it's so short and compressed. It is, though, I suppose. I mean, we leave the girlfriend behind. We don't really know where we are even when we are with her. We leave a lot of things behind. The character describes himself as having entered Wayne's dream about his wife in his house. But whose dream is it? You know, we we leave behind the houses. We leave behind the other fight at the bar, the fight that doesn't happen with the at the poker table. We seem to leave behind a lot as we go here, and we don't come back around. So maybe this is fuckhead's life. You know, something very ungrounded, something very unclear to himself. And like he says, there was something wrong with us and we didn't know what it was. You know, you talked about the incoherence of Fuckhead's narrative. And even just in those sort of opening moments, he's at a hotel with his girlfriend and then he's taking a bus to a bar. Then he's going to his apartment, which is nearby where he's parked his car. So you wonder, what was he doing in a hotel? He's living his whole place. life through a... He's looking through a big, broken kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that maybe what we understand in reading the story is that he can't tell us what he doesn't know, and that we know something that he doesn't know, and he knows something that he can't say. And we're following him. I'm willing to follow him. This story has a kind of a motor on it. I mean, it moves. And like I said earlier, the transitions are often extremely quick and abrupt. They happen mid-paragraph. Because the story's so short... Because it is actually contained inside a kind of a moment in Fuckhead's life. I think we can handle and accept those transitions. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not 10 or 15 pages on and having to be reminded where we were down the page. It's poem-like in a way. It's not a poem. It's a story. It makes a kind of a reality, and it makes a, a, a reality that, that we can see and feel and, and live inside. It's not a work in the fantastic. It's a drug mind. What do you make of the naked paraglider? Is it Wayne's wife? Is she there? Is is it a vision? I used to think about that, actually. I used to wonder about that. I think I wanted to do something like that. I mean, I, I think I wanted to be able to just have a, a, a woman hanging from a kite fly in somewhere and have that be all right, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know. Does it matter to me? Does it matter whether she's real or whether she's the wife? Fuckhead never, never declares himself to be in a dream of his own, only in his friend's dream. Mm-hmm. You know, and Johnson's making a dream, and he's doing it in a very undreamy way. He's doing it very concretely. I mean, we know the speed of the boat. We know there's a river there. We know it's in the middle of the river. We know there are saplings. We know there's a breeze. There's a triangular kite. There's a rope. She's belted in. These are details that are essential to our comprehension uh, of the vision. But they're not details, or they don't express Fuckhead's interpretation of the event. We're not dealing with his explanations. Yeah. He can't explain, you know. It's for us to, to not know. 
Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's part of what the story is doing is if not addressing something that we've seen before or feel familiar with or find ourselves uh, sympathizing with or imagining from our own lives, maybe what we're having then is that kind of emotional not knowing, that sense that that much of what we do and feel is is not clear to us. Mm-hmm. So there is a way into the story. It's just, it, but but I think the ways into the story have to do with with Dennis Johnson lines, with the speed of the lines, with the breaks, with the shortness of the sentences, and a kind of a kind of challenge not to interpret, or a, a lack of an opportunity. You know, the story keeps moving. There's something quite overwrought in the writing, especially at the very end. The the emotion that comes at the very end of the story where suddenly the bartender who's giving him extra liquor is his mother. And yet it's not, uh, it, it seems forgivable. It seems not not particularly sentimentality. Is that because what's come before has a brutality to it? Why are we not bothered by that? Well, we're set up a little bit by the, the pathetic fallacy. You know, we have little, little moments of a benevolent clouds. Uh, the watermark wandered the walls. You know, this business of compressing a metaphor, a simile, into a what seems like a, a sort of verbally uh, built reality. You know, actually, clouds aren't really benevolent. But as an expression of fuckhead's mind, that incoherence becomes less destructive to the story, actually becomes part of the depth of the story in some ways. I think we have a bit of a setup to get there. We're aware that this is a character whose sense of reality is is typically concrete but nonsensical to a degree that's related, as we read, to heroin and alcohol. So I think that when we get to the last line, your husband will beat you with an extension cord and the bus will pull away, leaving you standing there in tears, but you were my mother. We're ready to make that equation. We're ready to feel that, even though we wouldn't know it. And it just has to happen. Uh, Updike said that, that Jesus' son has... Th- the gleaming economy and aggressive minimalism of early Hemingway. I don't see that economy and, and minimalism here. There's there's this sort of refusal to react. There's a certain laconic tone to it. But the language to me seems very ornate, not particularly hemingway It is ornate, isn't it? It's a little bit hard-boiled. There's a kind of a noir feeling to some of it. Was well, that image of the, the man dipping his head to the shot glass on the bar being like right. a, a hummingbird going into a blossom? Yeah, maybe Hemingway would have stripped away some of the imagery. But finally, the compression of the story and the speed of the story and the clarity in the story. I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. Hemingway-like, but uh, yeah, I think I can feel a similarity or some similarities. I interviewed Dennis last year at BAM, and I asked him about this book, about Jesus' son, and and he's quite dismissive about it. When he talks about it now, he's, and he said, oh, it's just a ripoff of uh, Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry. Which I have not read. He sort of calls it Bar Tales. You, yeah, that yeah, he yeah. just wrote yeah. down. Yeah, I can imagine. But that was a yeah. while ago, so you can't listen to him. <laughs> That's what everyone says. You can't listen to him. You can't listen to his interpretation well, of these stories. Well, he has his own attitude about what he did a long time ago. Yeah. I have a tendency to write things off after 20 years, too. I'm not a particularly good judge of what I do. Maybe he's not a particularly good judge over time of what he's done. And that's probably as it should be. And these stories live. They, they, I think they're alive. They yeah, go I think, on. I think they're alive. I think that they're sort of crashing movement. Uh, and, and I think that their economy and, and, like I said, narrative speed 
Uh, they're very much alive. You're surprised all the time, you know. And they're beautiful. I, I mean, there's a kind of um, cumulative effect, I think, to uh, Fuckhead's moments of reverie and his, his descriptions of fields and rivers and his description of the world as, well, his description of the world as a beautiful place. His description, for instance, of the hailstones. Mm-hmm. You know, this is all piling up inside us as we go. You know, we're seeing a world, but we're also we're also taking in a kind of an intensity of color, uh, visual experience and feeling. So, yeah, I think these stories are quite alive. Well, thank you, Donald. Thank you. Donald Antrim's latest book is The Afterlife, a memoir. You can hear him on a fiction podcast from 2007, reading a story by Donald Barthelme. Just go to the iTunes store, where you can download more than 70 previous fiction podcasts and also subscribe to the New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.